0: Welcome to episode three of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. And we are heading to 1970s Los Angeles uh, for this episode with music that was originally recorded then and has just been released this year. Uh, Our interview is with Mick Garris, um, talking about his, his band Horse Feathers. What were your thoughts going into this one?
1: Well, I was really intrigued what um what Mick would bring to it in terms of uh talking about his music given that the the bulk of his career has not been focused on that um and also intrigued by the the nature of the music that was being presented to us you know um Mick talks about how in the interview that prog has never been particularly well received by people and you know so listening to the music it felt slightly impenetrable to me at, at the beginning before the interview um yeah so I, I suppose yeah interested to see what would come out of it
0: yeah how did you how did you find Mick when we were when we were talking to him because obviously he's used to as he says in the interview he's used to talking about his career in filmmaking and as a uh, a writer and director and producer in in Hollywood Uh, but in terms of his band it's not something that he talks about very gets an opportunity to talk about very often how did you find that
1: well it was just refreshing to see what a passion he had for for the music that he made and as you know 50 years have passed Um, he talks about the importance of the those friendships and relationships with the people that he made that music with Um, you know one of them had sadly passed away since they made that Um, and those relationships had carried on and they were still uh, still strong still making music um, talking about writing songs recently and um, you know in addition to that he's a great raconteur isn't he you know there were so many, so many great quotes that came out of that interview. Just little off the cuff one liners that I just kind of immediately filed in, filed away to kind of bring out at a later stage. Um, yeah. So, and I think in terms of um, the experience of, you know, how how much humility again. Similar, similarly to what Kyle brought to the, the previous episode. But, you know, Mick had such humility the way that he talked about, about music um, and and about his creativity.
0: He did. And and his music and the, the music that he made with his friends, his bandmates is very evocative of that moment in music really because time wasn't kind to them was it they they kind of arrived and started to make headway at a time when that sort of music was you know on its last legs and things were changing very very dramatically and when you listen to it it's very evocative of that time um without really a hint of you know what's around the corner for them unfortunately
1: yeah completely and I think you could you get a sense of that when you hear um, mick talking about the stories about their journey that the kind of the sands kind of just shifted underneath their feet without them really knowing and then all of a sudden it i guess to a certain extent it kind of came crashing down around them and brought things to a to a finality didn't it
0: it did it would be really great to uh, to try and speak to somebody who was in that scene on the other side of things you know, to to yeah, it really, would,
1: it really would, yeah, It'd
0: be a lovely yeah, little counterpoint really to this conversation. And I have to say, I don't think we're going to find, or we're going to struggle to find, a story in terms of the release of the music, um, or the music sort of emerging, um, a, a story as unique as this one. You know that that period of time and and revisiting and and kind of embellishing the music now. You know, after such a such a gap.
1: Yeah, and the passion that he that Mick spoke about, um, about holding the physical object in his hand, you know, here's the album that we made together that we made 50 years ago and then we came back together and now we finished it and here it is. And we know that uh, from being musicians. We know what a joy it brings to have the physical product in your hand, eh?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still, very much like Kyle's comments about these are my friends and that's what was important. And we were, you know, that camaraderie and that friendship and that bond between, between bandmates. And also we're doing this because we want to hear our music and, and it's exactly the same feeling. And he's had that, you know, we, after such a gap to, to still have that response to holding it is, holding that music in his hand is amazing.
1: Um, it's a great, yeah. So it's, it's a really great thing. And I think I think I can't remember if we've talked about this in the in the episodes before we certainly talked about it together afterwards after speaking with Mick that um you know i I certainly did find listening to the horse Feather stuff a little bit challenging before we did the interview but um coming to the song again once we'd had the conversation with Mick, it completely changed your perception of how you have how you listen to the music and i started to to pick up and find points of interest and little references that i hadn't thought about at all before that's just yeah it's um it was refreshing refreshing to get you you know to open your ears a little wider
0: yeah absolutely so well let's do that let's listen to our interview with mick garris on episode three of songs from a padded envelope
2: Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and back in the 1970s, I was in an original progressive rock band called Horse Feathers. And the song that you're going to hear is the opening track of our album Symphony for a Million Mice, and it's called Porcelain Eggs Sweet. Uh, it's going to be really great to play that at the end of the
0: show um, because it is fair to say that the journey to the release of this music has been a long one. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. could, <laughs> could you take us back to the origins of Horse Feathers initially and how the band initially came together.
2: Yeah, it was a, a group of friends. Uh, my uh, Our keyboard player, a guy named Bill Burney, who became our chief composer, uh, lived with his grandmother. We went to college together and we were in media study classes, television production classes back in the early 70s. And uh, he and a group of friends would just gather around in his recording studio and do funny little songs. And and we felt like it was time to make a real band out of it. He said to me, can you play an instrument? Do you do anything musical? And I said, well, maybe I can carry a tune. I'd never been in a band before, but I'd been a music journalist. In my teen years, I interviewed Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and various other people as a journalist. And uh, we started out uh, with... Our original five guys, Bill Burney, Mark Wittenberg, who uh, has been deceased since the 90s, um, Andy Robinson on drums and Bill Manning on bass and rhythm guitar. Mark was our lead guitar player. And then I did lead vocals. Um, And we basically just did novelty tunes in his grandmother's house (laughs) and uh, in his home studio. But the longer we went into it, the more serious we got ab- about our music and and became a real band that would go out and play places. Originally, it was kind of a country rock band. It was the 70s after all, the early 70s. And we were Californian. So yeah. uh, that seemed to be the fate. But the longer we started doing it, the more interested we got in doing something out of the ordinary. And and we became inspired by classical music and other uh other more outre musicians, bands like Gentle Giant and Yes, and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Frank Zappa. They were doing things with the form. They were adding an intelligence that wasn't necessarily a part of uh, rock and roll. And this was a, an intelligence and a sophistication. Now, most progressive rock bands in the 70s were kind of pretentious and if if anything very serious and we were all pretty self-mocking funny people so we we loved the intelligence and the complexity of progressive rock but we also did it with a sense of humor so if you've listened to the album you know there's a little bit of tomfoolery going around through there so uh, so we our first gig we ever did I was at the um junior college i was going to outside of san diego in southern california and i was asked to book the concert and so it was a couple of recording acts and then we needed an opening act and well what about horse feathers (laughs) an 18 year old mick garris singing lead and so i had never been in a band before and had never really done public performance and here we were in a gymnasium packed with 2,000 people And uh, so that was my my introduction to it.
1: So what what did that feel like, Mick, having had no musical experience and suddenly being foisted in front of 2,000 people?
2: Well, fortunately, everybody else in the band was really talented and had been in bands before. But I was constantly on the verge of throwing up, uh, quite honestly. But once everything started, I played an introduction on an organ uh, to the first song that we're going to do. Once we walked on stage and that introduction started, everybody in the audience started to applaud. They want to be entertained. And so all of that tension and fear kind of melted away and unleashed the ham monster that that lived within me that I never knew was there. (laughs) Did that surprise you? Not really, because I was a little bit of a class clown in school, but never on a big stage in front of thousands of people but they encouraged me and that was their mistake
0: (laughs) (laughs) brilliant so but making that transition from writing about music to be to fronting a rock band how much of that was sort of you know having met people like Jimi hendrix and janice joplin both of whom are you know incredible presence had incredible presence on stage um did any of that sort of encourage you or help you to to make that transition to fronting the band
2: yeah i mean it, it certainly played a part you know i was a huge music fan and and my tastes were not the standard top 40 tastes of the time but being able to meet these people who even then were gods before they died at 27 um you know the these were people who knocked me out my first i mean other than the beatles my first really huge band crush was the Moody Blues. And they were also the first band I ever interviewed. So here I am, this teenager, fresh out of high school, writing for uh, a magazine that I published myself called Arthur the Magazine, when I'm 18 years old, and getting access to these gods of music. And it was so inspirational. And, you know, once we started playing with some recording acts and opening for for major bands like the Kinks and Renaissance and Flash and Foghat, people like that, 70s staples, you know, yeah. um, it was inspirational and aspirational. So it was incredible. And and the guys that were in the band with me the whole seven or eight years we were together, we were only the same five guys. and we became the closest of friends and we inspired each other and, and, you know, would uh, tell each other, no, why don't we do something weirder or better or, or more interesting than that? You know, that's kind of simple. What if we do a, an interesting middle eight here and, you know, and, and we were inspired by ourselves as well as the people surrounding us. So, so how important was the, with the friendships within the band then make, was
1: that the crucial. sort of bedrock of everything that you did? Absolutely crucial.
2: Yeah. I mean, these became my closest mates. You know, we were we would rehearse together three times a week and we would go out to the movies and dinners and lunch and, and went to school together at college. And you know, they were they were family. This was and to this day we are still the closest of friends. We don't all live in the same city. When we see each other, it's like it was yesterday when we saw each other last. I mean, these are these are friendships that are at the bedrock of our lives, not just our creative lives.
1: Just going back a little bit with uh, the self-publish with with the magazine Arthur you're talking about. Yeah. So how did you how did you bring that together and how did you actually get to to meet people like Hendrix and Janis Joplin? How did how did that happen?
2: I uh, just kind of being naive, that it, believing that I could do it without <laughs> knowing that, gee, you're not supposed to. I basically, I wrote the whole magazine. I solicited creative people I knew to do some artwork or review albums or movies, things like that. But I did most of it. And I did all the typesetting myself back when that was a thing you had to do mechanically, how many spaces will make the the rows even of the columns in your in your magazine and i sold some ads i had a an old rambler station wagon that i would take bundles of these magazines all around san diego county and drop them off it it was a free magazine it never really paid for itself but it did in the experience that we got Um, so it was entirely i didn't know how self-motivated i could be or that I was being that entrepreneurial. It was just a a creative explosion that, that wouldn't this be a good idea and then doing it. And it it kind of worked out to, to be something real that people would read. And then I could contact a record company of a band that was going to be in town, their publicist, publicist and say, look, I'm with Arthur the magazine. And I also wrote occasionally for the local uh, San Diego newspaper and the like, but, You know, it became something where if you were a journalist, it was not that difficult to line up these interviews. And the first place I did it was for the San Diego Door, the same newspaper that Cameron Crowe got his start at, uh, that Almost Famous is uh, the movie Almost Famous that he wrote and directed. It starts with him as a 16-year-old journalist, 15-year-old journalist at the San Diego door, he was 15 and I was 17 when we were writing for the same paper, writing about music. He became much more successful in his music journalism than I did, but we both ended up being film directors, which is kind of ironic.
1: Yeah, really. I, can only, I can only imagine that experience must have given you an enormous amount of self-belief if you didn't already have that.
2: Uh, I, I don't know. I'm also pretty self deprecating, you know, and think that I'm fooling people by getting away with stuff. <laughs> so, um, but once we started to receive the reactions that we would receive, that certainly helped a lot. I was very shy and not at all popular until I was lead singer in a band. <laughs> Suddenly, I was being invited to parties nobody would ever have invited me to before. But for every well-received concert we did there'd be a club date where there'd be eight people saying boogie play some rock and roll this isn't dance music you know you guys suck so it it keeps you level
0: it does yeah absolutely i do remember playing uh, on a a a tour in the 90s and literally playing to one man and his dog in oh, uh, right. a venue, a venue in Leeds, <laughs> and it was a great show. It was. It turned out to be a really good performance.
2: Well, I uh, hope you recorded it for your live at Leeds album. Yeah, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, there'd be big boots to fill to call your uh, call your album live at Leeds, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, just going back to what you were saying about um, sort of the, the culturally that you had like your musical peers and what was going on, and you you, you mentioned some of the bands that were initially influences on you, but how much did you feel like you were, although you were trying to do things differently, how much did you, were you trying to fit in with what was happening culturally and, and, uh, you know, mirror your, what your peers were doing musically?
2: Um, Not at all. Uh, We definitely didn't fit into anybody's idea of, of what rock and roll was at the time. Although, you know, we were getting good reviews, but basically we kind of, would put on our own concerts because we weren't really a bar band. We weren't really a dance band. We weren't a boogie band. We were more of a show band and a concert band. And so we would put on our own concerts, charge for the, get the tickets printed, sell them at the local record stores. When I was working at Tower Records, uh, when I was in the band. So that helped a lot. Um, And we, our whole raison d'etre was to be, unique and was to be exciting. Our our keyboard player, Bill, that I mentioned was our primary composer, although everybody in the band wrote. He really didn't listen to other people's music. He listened more to classical music or outre kinds of things. So there wasn't much influence. He wasn't getting much influence from what was going on there. And he was very much a musical anti-establishment guy. And so we all kind of loved that rebel attitude and the idea you know not becoming snobs about it but trying to do something you know these days there's a subgenre in horror films called elevated horror and it's a terrible terrible term that insults horror movies basically yeah you know horror movies are dumb but elevated horror that's different so in a way progressive rock was elevated rock and as opposed (laughs) to elevator rock but that's something entirely different um but so we were trying to do something that didn't take itself too seriously um, because again, we would mock ourselves mercilessly at times, maybe in defense before somebody else would do it to us. But there was definitely elements of Spinal Tap and there's Stonehenge and that kind of stuff going on.
1: There. <laughs> One of the things that you've said and or that came across in your biog was this, uh, an ambition to do something fiercely original so we just wondered if you could sort of share some of the highlights from the horse feathers career with uh, reference to that
2: well you know we we ended up playing lots of different instruments everybody played several instruments other than me i played some claw piano and some rhythm guitar because i'm not much of an instrumentalist but you know we opened for the kinks and that was phenomenal you know back in the 70s the kinks were just the roots of rock and roll they they dated back as far as the beatles introduction you know all day and all the night and all these things and and they were our gods opening for them renaissance was another prog rock band from britain that was almost all the prog rock bands were from the uk and to be able to to open for people like that. And Flash uh, was a band formed by Peter Banks, who was the guitarist for Genesis before. And so being able to play in concert with people that we really admired was was pretty amazing. Um, But like we opened for uh, Flash and Mike Bloomfield and the San Diego newspaper reviewer, titled the uh, review, Horse Feathers, a Cheap Imitation, and, and goes on and on about how we were such a shitty blues band. Well, he was reviewing Foghat. <laughs> 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 so, again, there's, there's no way to get a big head when, when you're Horse Feathers. So, <laughs> um, but we, the whole time, because Bill had a recording studio, we were always recording our songs and refining them and 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 doing things that we didn't think we could do live but it ended up yeah you can you just have to be good and you just have to practice and and work really hard and you can play really complex music as well as you can play simple music just if you're dedicated to it and and you let the music carry you you know it's like writing books or screenplays you find out that your hands do the writing, your brain is is in another place entirely. You
1: know? How did the composition, how did the songwriting work? So you said that Bill would bring, it would sort of make, make the main ideas, would he bring them in and how would you work on them as a band?
2: Well, it would be different in different cases. Um, sometimes there'd be lyrics first. Bill wrote some lyrics. I, Andy, our drummer, and I wrote most of the lyrics. Um, but, uh, sometimes lyrics would come first, but usually with Bill, especially when we were moving into our era that is, is well represented on the CD, um, he would often kind of just compose this, this symphony for rock instruments on his own and then bring it in and say, do you got some words for this? And, you know, in a way it, he would be Paul McCartney telling us what our parts were, but also We would do other things, you know, Mark Wittenberg, our guitarist, also was a a great guitarist and really good songwriter. Um, He would rarely do the um, lyrics, but he also was our Groucho Marx. He was one of the funniest guys ever to live. And so a lot of the musical sense of humor would be his. And Bill Manning was more of a rocker in the songs that he did, although we did a ballad together that I wrote the lyrics and he wrote the music to. So everybody approached it differently. And Andy, our drummer, also played dulcimer. And you know, we did some really interesting stuff because he, he loved finding new instruments that were out of the rock and roll canon and bring them to it. And so the diversity of it was our strongest point, but it was also our weakest selling point. It's really hard to convince an, a, a record company that doing a bunch of stuff that sounds different is a great thing. <laughs> You know, they want you to be a particular kind of thing that they can sell. So we um, we were our own worst enemy commercially, but hopefully creatively we were we were our best friends. Were there were
0: there many attempts to try and convince record companies to sign you? Did you you go down that route with your work?
2: All the time. Yeah, because we weren't making a living off of the band. All of us had other lives and, and. and uh, incomes, none of which ended up being what we pursued eventually and, and made careers out of. But yeah, we were constantly driving up to Los Angeles and meeting with record companies and leaving demos. and. I even met George Martin in in an elevator once at at Columbia Records and gave him tapes. And he didn't respond, but I ran into him again uh, like a year later. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember. I I I thought it was really good, but I didn't know what I could do with it. So there was our same problem happening again. But, um, you know, it was a great learning experience. And we got to do what we wanted to do and do it for an audience, even if the audience was local and not international. You know,
1: Was there ever a point where you felt like the band was about to take off? It might have gone further than, than it actually did.
2: Yeah, we met with one record company. They'd put out a couple of hits who loved one of our songs, one of our more simple <laughs> ballads. And they said, we want to sign you. We want to put this out as a single. And we thought, man, we're on our way. Then the record company went out of business. So Ah. we never ended up doing it. But we always felt like we were on the verge of doing it. Because in San Diego, we could draw big crowds. But everywhere else, nobody had ever heard of us. We had a single that was put out locally in San Diego only, a regional record. That played on the local radio stations regularly, but you know it—it it was sold at Tower Records and the warehouse, and that was about it. So we had—we had a history that allowed us to have the most wonderful memories, and the fact that you guys are paying attention to uh, stuff that was originally recorded forty some years ago is—is is delightful and flattering and uh, and wonderful to talk about that and not necessarily talk about stephen king's the stand every day for <laughs> hours at a time especially during the <laughs> pandemic <laughs> absolutely
0: well I've, in fact i've given ben instructions to uh, to intervene if we stray off into those sort of subject areas <laughs> he's, he's two he's to bring me brings back because there is that temptation. we're good with whatever you want to talk about yeah we're good. thank you mick <laughs> thank you mick um <laughs> So, well, I suppose it's a slight segue into this question, because you have said that your time in horse, horse Feathers inspired every bit of your creative life since. So could you could you maybe say a little bit
2: more about that? Yeah, well, the idea that you can do something out of the ordinary and people pay attention to it, maybe not the people that hire you, but but being able to do something like Masters of Horror, creating that series, was the opportunity to get the best people in the horror genre, the best directors who make this stuff and give them full reign, no censorship, make what you want. And if you can do it on the budget and on the schedule, then you're absolutely free to do whatever you want to do. And that's what we did musically. We didn't have anybody telling us what to do. We weren't trying to write hit singles. We thought that there was a possibility that we could make it on our own, being as original as possible. And it ended up not to be the case, but I wouldn't give up those seven or eight years that uh, that we were doing it for anything. Um, so, yeah, the opportunity to do something new. And Nightmare Cinema, I did the same thing. Hire directors and tell them, look, we don't have much time or money, but you don't have anybody telling you what to do. And some of these people did some of their best work ever under those circumstances and hopefully myself. And the idea that you can give your imagination full reign and come up with material that an audience is going to appreciate. And that all came out of being in a band that wasn't like any other band. Mm. So, yeah,
0: embracing creative freedom. And exactly. encouraging that in others absolutely yeah exactly def- as a
2: director you know i i consider my job as being finding and encouraging and allowing the best people to do their best work and that came out of of trying to be that with horse feathers and trying to be original you know we we were original without being esoteric we were accessible progressive rock like you know, Gentle Giant is complicated, but they're really great to listen to. Um, yes, the same thing. It's not so esoteric that it only appeals to the people in the band. Hopefully,
1: yeah. It's interesting because we've had um, we've had an opportunity opportunities to interview many musicians through in this project and previous projects, and people um, define success in many different ways. And your the, the the stuff you're talking about here is, has equal merit to a band that has success in terms of sales and other things, doesn't it?
2: Success yeah. is, is wider. Well, wider we defied success, <laughs> 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 but, we, but, you know, all these years later, we, we went back, Bill still has all of the original recordings. We went back and took some of our best recordings. And not just cleaned them up, but we added new vocals and new instrumentation and, and you know, made them sound contemporary. And we had never put out an album. And so this year we put out our first album, you know, and it brings back teens and 20s in our lives in ways that I never thought would would raise their heads again. And here here we are. And here I am talking to you about this music.
1: Well, we've got, we got lots lots of questions that link straight into that. I mean, Great. we were thinking, could you share a bit about the process of, of revisiting the songs and how you went about preparing them for the release?
2: Yeah, Bill, who lives in Washington, uh, Washington State, he was going through all of these recordings and saying, you know, I'm going to clean these up. Let's put these together uh, and and modernize them a bit. And then the idea came of, let's make this into an album. We all decided which would be the ones to, to listen to and to enhance and modernize. And, uh, you know, Bill had the ones he wanted to do, and he was our, our uh, recording engineer, so we gave him full reign. But we all started thinking about what, what's the best order and all of that. But uh, we did it, like Andy and Bill Manning, live in san diego county which is south of los angeles by 100 miles or so and bill living in washington which is two states north of us Um, so i would drive down to san diego and andy and i would record some new vocals uh bill was in washington and adding new uh instrumentation through samples or keyboards or whatever bill manning would come to visit us in San Diego and play some rhythm guitar tracks and add some intr- instrumentation there. So we did it in three different cities. I did a couple of things here on my computer through this microphone I'm talking to you on. And, uh, and so, uh, and then Bill came down uh, and we did some more pieces here as well with him, but then he would go to his wizard's lab and take all of these things and turn it into something that that sounds like it was recorded today and not like it was recorded in 1975
0: yeah well th- that's really interesting because i think it has a mixture of those a mixture of those things it has that contemporary uh fear feel it, in fact it, it it's very hard to place yeah uh wise L- listening to like you yeah, it, it, it's it's difficult to pin down because if you think, listen to things like the drums the drums definitely sound you know of of their time the way that and, and i love that drum yes. sound i love that he's yeah. a brilliant drummer was there much sort of conversation around how contemporary sounding you could make it
2: well the good thing about progressive rock is that it's timeless because nobody ever liked it yeah <laughs> it was never popular um so you know, mainly there was never really a conversation about do we want to keep it sounding, period, or do we want to make it modern? It was always let's make it sound the best that we can make it sound. Often the weak point in our recordings in the 70s seemed to be how to record the drums well. They never really got the depth of it. The the recordings that we got, I think, are some of the best recorded sounds of the drums during our career, and we weren't adding drums uh because they were two-track stereo masters we couldn't take out any tracks we could only go over we could only overdub so we could add but not subtract and uh adding drums over drums roy wood can do it but (laughs) we weren't going for that avalanche of sound and roy wood is god to me by the way i just love roy wood so It was always pursuing the best possible sound that we could. Bill was good at being able to enhance the original recordings to a certain degree, but there's only so much you can do with that. So with the new recordings and some of the background vocals were were freshened and brightened a bit, um, even one of the lead vocals was intentionally sung off-key originally, the big top rock, the circus song. everybody everybody encouraged me to sing it off key and i always thought it was a mistake and i did it but i double tracked it with an on key version when we were redoing these recordings so now you've got a background version that's a little off key intentionally and hopefully on key in the uh, in the modernization of the recording well I, I wanted to because you brought up your vocal Mick. Uh, one of the things that
0: um struck me was your vocal and um it's a very you have a very diverse uh (laughs) range of uh vocal styles across the songs you go in all sorts of different places so taking into consideration that you hadn't done it before
2: how come you haven't done it since or have you i have a very strong voice oh thank you well i don't know if i still do but uh you know enough to get some of the newer vocals but one of the things you talk about the diversity of it it's one of uh, probably an asset of never having found success there was never a voice for a certain hit song or or something that people expected from the band i just i'm kind of a mimic so i hear other people's voices and don't know that i'm mimicking them at times but i'm sure that came into play but with original songs you're not trying to mimic somebody else. And because all of our music was original, um, it was whatever worked for the song. And it wasn't necessarily trying different voices as much as, you know, I would sing the song and and it would come out the way it came out for that. Um, but it was a diversity of material that made for the diversity of vocals. Uh, it was never an attempt to go, I'm going to do this, you know. Well, when we were a country rock band, I... I kind of gimmicked that up a little bit, but that that didn't last too long.
0: There's little bits of it in there, though, aren't there? There are, There's still some uh, country rock inflections in moments yeah. of those songs.
2: Yeah. Sure. In fact, in Something Big, there's a little bit of a country rock uh, ditty in the middle uh-huh. of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So these are teasers for people listening now because we're only going <laughs> to yeah. hear one song. So uh,
2: they're going to have to go and explore the rest of them. That's right. It is on... Yeah. It is on iTunes, it's on Google Play, it's on uh, Spotify, and you can get the CD from us, uh, signed if you like, on horsefeathersmusic.com. I recommend it, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you do. People should know what to expect is that a lot of these songs are lengthy and go through lots of different changes you know it's it, 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 like i was talking about the influence of classical music there are movements in a lot of these things and and we didn't want to get bored so we were often changing course in in time signatures and in, in styles and all within you know they they were opus. well our big opus is almost 20 minutes long and it's a live recording that we did with a mime, he had created a routine called Satan's Creation, and we were like composers scoring to a movie. And so, it's our most spinal tap piece, <laughs> and, and it's close to 20 minutes long. So, that's a warning, and it closes out the album. So, uh, but it was pretty impressive to play it live and not fuck it up (laughs) (laughs) uh, and so that recording was actually done live and uh, it the sound quality and everything is is pretty impressive for something done over 40 years ago
0: really yeah absolutely and it's a it's a beast of a song
1: (laughs) it's It's like 10 songs in one Uh, yes. I have to say, I did. I didn't quite
2: make it through the twenty minutes of it. Oh,
1: Ben! <laughs> but maybe Ow. I'll go back to it now. Ow! Ow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I didn't make it through much of it. It's so long, and there's long instrumental pieces. I would have to walk off stage for five minutes at a time. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there any live footage of Horse Feathers? No, there was an eight millimeter film done once. Um, this was we were a pre-video band and uh, there was no sound on it, and I look at it, and it's totally embarrassing. So so you'll you'll never see it on YouTube. Yeah, exactly.
1: So Mick, when you think about um, the original recording process and how that compares to what you've just described about coming back to the demos, could you share a little bit about where you recorded and your memories from those original sessions?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of the stuff was done at, at Bill's home after he moved out of his grandmother's house, you know, into his own place. Still had a lot of equipment and we we would record sometimes just roughly on a cassette machine. But most of our demos, you know, we would do with a professional semi-professional home deck that, uh, that Bill had built. But we also went to a place called Studio West a lot. Um, uh, an engineer named Bill Blue, uh, was engineered a lot of that stuff, the original things. Um, but we would often take them home and, and layer them kind of like the Beatles did on Sergeant Pepper, which to my mind, Sergeant Pepper is the first progressive rock album. And so, they were pinging back and forth between four track machines back and forth to create 16 tracks by going with a couple of four track machines but we would take them home and then just overdub and again adding not subtracting was the only way to do it um and several years ago bill burney was a music editor in hollywood doing movies and tv shows and the like and that was the first time where we got the idea of doing some overdubs. Mark was still alive and we did some double tracking of his guitar leads and and layered some things over. And, and I think Bill never really forgot how, how successful he was at bringing new life to some older recordings. And I think that was the inspiration all these years later to go back and do it again now that we all have gray hair those of us who still have hair. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was really fun. We would, we would, it, like I said, we would get together at least three nights a week to do rehearsals. And then in addition to that, we would do recording time. And, and it was just like getting together and putting, you know, making a movie today. Everybody has the tools to do that with their, their iPhone and their iPads and their, their MacBooks and all that. You can make a pretty professional quality movie and it was the equivalent of doing that back in those days where we could actually use the tools that we had and even though they weren't at the highest end um, we could never afford all of that it was all we could do to get a a mono mono voice uh, synthesizer Uh, we couldn't afford a moog so we had a roland Uh, but but we were basically using our ingenuity to try and create quality uh out of resources that did not cost a lot of money uh you've mentioned
0: in the in the bios with that that you moved to la, LA in 76 just mm-hmm. as um, punk and new wave was breaking and that no one wanted to sign or hear hear prog anymore so mm-hmm. how did that sort of impact and feel at, at the time and is is that what led to the the, the sort of the demise
2: of the band um the, yeah. the, that
0: big sea change
2: yeah it wasn't just punk it was also disco and again there was never a successful american prog rock band there was never anybody like that it, they were all from the uk or from germany uh europeans certainly but there was never a successful prog rock band yes had hit singles um and elp had had lucky man um but mostly they were album bands and uh, i was working at tower records in san diego and when i moved to la i ended up working at tower records in la i had a job set so i could move up here four of us moved up here bill manning thought that he would be able to stay in San Diego, drive up to our rehearsals twice a week, and and we could continue that way. It became much more difficult. Disco and punk had taken over the music scene. We found it even more difficult to book in Los Angeles clubs, because that's not what people were looking for. There weren't really concert venues available to us in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We were getting very discouraged, and we actually started learning other people's songs and and thinking, you know, it was something I never wanted to do. But people said, well, if we can make our living making music, isn't it worth it to continue doing that? And so I went along with it. Um, I don't think anybody was thrilled to do that. And we're learning Tom Petty songs and and various other hit songs of the era. And it just um, basically everything that was thrilling and exciting about being in a band was kind of going by the wayside. Bill wasn't living in L.A. We weren't all together on the same page about everything. And after about a year, we just kind of called it quits. <clears throat> and I mean, I'm glad we moved to LA. I needed to be here to for my other pursuits of filmmaking, and it ended up being a very wise move to do. But it definitely was the demise of, of horse feathers, you know, with girlfriends moving and not moving, and and all of the the personal things going on, as well as as professionally, and trying to trying to make music. Um, as a group of five guys, we, we kind of splintered and it was, it was sad, but it, it ended up being the right move.
1: Yeah, It must've been, it must've been harsh because you've talked about how strong your friendships were and still, and still are. It yeah. must've
2: been, must been a tough period to go through. It was. And it was also a time when we were really popular in San Diego and like the title of the Frank Zappa album, we were just another band in LA. Um, they were a dime a dozen. Uh, there might have even been other prog rock bands, but there was just no way to get bookings. Nobody knew who we were. Um, you know, nobody would go, "Oh, hey, there's Bill Burney from Horse Feathers." You know, it would just be, "Oh, there's that guy from Wienerschnitzel or something." <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was kind of crushing and disappointing. We we hoped for. It. We had access to the record companies more than we had because we were living in the same city i was still doing rock journalism and supporting myself by working at tower records and i was even doing all of the rock import ordering because i could i could get those rare british prog rock albums that i couldn't find in america um, and carry them even though nobody else bought them but me and three or four other nerds from high fidelity
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you, uh, have you ever tried to um, shoehorn a horse feather's track into uh, a movie soundtrack?
2: I, I never have. It would be kind of hard to do um, because it calls attention to itself uh, the, just by the nature of the music being um, kind of operatic in a way. Uh, and a lot of uh, songs that you want to score movies with. Um, don't call attention to themselves they kind of nestle into bed with the movie and and they become lovers and so we could probably find something that did that I have used my wife's music a couple times Um, my wife Cynthia is a wonderful composer and used to be a songwriter and then became a classical piano uh, composer and I've used a couple of her pieces um, that were easier to fit in than than the horse feathers one. Uh, I
1: was just thinking that uh, just in general throughout the course of the whole conversation that there's a lot of pride about the way that you talk about the band um, and going back to coming back to the music and revisiting it and giving it some more due attention it sounds like you'd something that you collectively are very proud of
2: yeah I think we were surprised at how good it sounds, Uh, whether it sounds contemporary or modern or not, you know, we, we were pretty good, you know, that we always used to think our, our reach exceeded our gas, our grasp. And, um, I listened to this and there's some solos that Mark does that are just as good as any I've ever heard. And, and, you know, Bill Burney, uh, his, the keyboard playing, the bass playing, the drumming. And I listened to myself singing and I go, you know, I could carry a tune. It wasn't bad, but but as as a group, it was really something special. We knew it at the time, but we didn't know we'd feel the same way forty years later. And to be able to have this this physical C D uh, with a professional looking album cover and the like going, Wow, we finally did an album and it's here forever, you know? It's 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 a great feeling. Congratulations for that. Oh, thanks. Well, we did it ourselves. So <laughs> yeah, but well,
0: we, it's, a, it, it's great, isn't it? To have that, to hold it in your hand and all of the stories that you've, you've, you've shared that led up to that being in your hand. It's a, it's a hugely important thing. And actually, um, I think it's probably quite a, quite unique, a, a story in, in, in rock and roll to, to have your demos as your first album and yeah. there be that journey in between. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And, um, is there anything left in the horse feathers vault? Oh,
2: there's there's a lot of stuff. There's, we had hours and hours and hours of stuff. We were together. <laughs> we were together for about eight years, and now these were the best recordings. But there are a handful of other really good ones. And over the last ten years or so, we did maybe three new songs, and they were. A lot less operatic. They were simpler, but they were more modern, and and they felt really good. And maybe we'll do an EP or put those out singly. Um, and there are a few other recordings that I'd like to see have life. But like you were saying, you know, having this on a physical CD, it's like I had done several movies and TV shows before I published my first book, and the idea of having your first book out on a shelf and people can read it anywhere in the world and it's it's there and it's all what you do you know with a with a movie there's 50 100 150 people behind the making of that movie with a book it's just you and it's just your voice and your language on a page and so it's the same with with putting out our first and only album Mick thank you so much for speaking to us
0: today it's been a joy to hear hear the stories behind the horse feathers music
2: i can't tell you how much i appreciate you asking about the band it's it's a very important part of my life and and i'm really glad that it brought you some joy
0: it absolutely has could
2: i ask you one more thing please and could i ask you to introduce uh the song that people are going to hear now All right, this little opus is called Porcelain Eggs Sweet. It is a little bit classical, a little bit rock and roll, and it goes through a lot of changes. Thank you, Mick.